Good morning, everyone. I love our church. I love our sense of humor. That you can laugh when you come up here. Or weep. And share your heart. Uh, that's real. And faith is not a, um, a sign of perfection among us. That uh, when you've attained this kind of faith and you're there, you're at it. But you know what faith is? It's hanging on to Jesus Christ when you don't know what else to do. That's faith. Well, today is our uh, last Sunday in the book of Galatians. We've been in here since January. I told my wife, I'm, I'm kind of a little sad. I feel like I'm saying goodbye to a good friend. It's been a good, uh, a good study together. And today, um, Paul is going to add his last remarks to this church. So I'm turning in my Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Book of Galatians, chapter 6. Beginning with verse 11. Would you stand with me as we finish this book? Paul writes, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You can be seated. Well, maybe it be helpful to take a quick walkthrough from where we have begun, uh, where we began at the start of this letter. Would that be helpful just to see where we've come from? Well, when we began, Paul began this way in the book of Galatians, that uh, by laying down a convincing defense of his own apostleship. Because remember, that was the first thing that they attacked. These false teachers who came and they said, you know what? That guy who came preaching to you at first, he didn't know what he was saying. He didn't have the whole truth. He was a second-hand apostle with a second-hand gospel. But Paul came and told them, no, what I received, I received from Jesus Christ himself. I didn't learn it from any other man, but it was given to me from God. That was chapters 1 and 2. From there, he then built up a masterful, I mean, a masterful explanation of the gospel of grace using the Old Testament. You remember this? 
Remember how he exposited the promise that was given to Abraham and then the purpose of why the law was then given after that? And really it was all to show that salvation, that being a true son of God, would be on the basis of faith and faith alone. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then Paul then, from there, rounded his letter with a very clarifying application of the gospel. Okay, In other words, how the gospel has its effect in real life. So, life in Christ, you could say this, it has its identifying marks. Yes, we're, we're freed from the obligation to meet the law's demands. You're not required to do that. But that freedom, which Jesus bought for us, now uh, it enables us, right? The Spirit of God lives us, and He now enables us to actually fulfill that very law. What you could not do outwardly, God accomplished inwardly. Remember this? Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who lives in me? Christ who lives in me. It's all possible because Christ lives in us. So that faith in Him energizes love. And love, guess what that does? It fulfills the whole law. That's chapters 5 and 6. Now come... The last remarks. Now, what do you leave them with? Imagine you're writing the letter. How do you end this? How should Paul bring to a conclusion a very impassioned and fiery letter? Do you struggle with how to end a message? You know, sometimes we end too abruptly, right? We leave people hanging. Oh, there's something you didn't say, right? Or maybe we just don't know how to end it and we just go on and on and on. Well, one thing Paul determines to do is that he will not leave us, or this church, he will not end this letter without a lasting impression. Remember, okay, this church faced an immediate spiritual threat. Many of them were thinking, you know, well, Jesus is good, but I think I need something else. Right? Be wary of anyone who comes to you and says, Jesus is good, but... Well, there's something else you need to do. And they make it sound as though you're not complete unless you do that other thing. There are no buts, ands, or ors that are attached to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing, as it says in the book of Acts, right? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So to turn away from the gospel okay, by accepting something like the law of Moses was really a bondage that was no different than the paganism they had come out of. But guess what? It doesn't have to be the law of Moses. In fact, any focus on my ability to follow some kind of standard is really a faith of self-reliance. So, getting baptized... Not what saves you. Church membership. Not what saves you. Yeah, praying before you eat every time. It's not what saves you. Never missing church. It's not what saves you. Listen, you need to look at the object of your faith and see what its strength is. Okay? A person is only as redeemable as the object of his or her faith is capable. In other words, you're not capable. 
And to think that you are is really to say that Jesus lived, bled, and died and rose again, but he didn't finish the job. There's still something I have to do. That wasn't the gospel that Paul preached. Who's the object of your faith? Is it me? If it's you, it won't happen. You need a qualified Savior, one who's capable, one who's strong. So what was happening in Galatia, listen, this was no small thing, no small disturbance. If you were there, what you would see was this, churches who were already in disarray, they were dividing, they were growing further apart as this new teaching was not only being tolerated, but it was being considered. Well, maybe this is a good idea. So Paul chooses his last remarks to make a lasting impression. And the first thing that we see him do is this, okay? He makes an emphatic and personal appeal. All right, verse 11. See, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. At this point, Paul leans over and he picks up the stylus. They didn't have pens back then. And he says, here, you know what? I'll take it from here. Meaning that up until this point, Paul has not actually been the one who's writing this letter. Did you know that? He was dictating as someone else did the writing for him. And this is a very customary practice of his day, but it also seemed very common for Paul to do. For example, notice um, Romans 16, verse 22. It says this, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Did you know that? Did you know that the book of Romans was actually penned by a man, a Christian, named Tertius? Okay, someone else penned 1 Corinthians, because here at the end it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So someone else also penned Corinthians. You say, well, why did, why did Paul make this a style for him? I think one reason Paul chose to dictate his letters is because it would connect the hearers with the way they first heard Paul speak. In other words, it would bring back the memory of Paul's preaching. Because if you want to write the way you speak, how better to do that than to speak and have someone write it for you? Say it out. Say what you want to say as if you were there and let someone write it for you. So as Paul, as this letter would be read, because that's what, how they would do it, they wouldn't pass it around to each other, but they would read it out loud. What that would be communicating, the effect that would have, is it would be as if Paul himself were there preaching. They would think, wow, it's like Paul is himself here. Now here at the end of Galatians, Paul has finished an idea with chapter 6, verse 10, but his heart isn't full yet. There's something more left to say. Okay, there's too much on the line to leave it at that. So in a last effort, he adds this very personal touch. Right? See. He wants him to see it. See with what large letters I'm writing to you. This was an appeal to their hearts. Wow, now Paul himself is writing. And we can imagine the the crowd of believers of Galatians that were getting this letter leaning in and listening a little bit closer, right? Maybe they were moved by seeing his handwriting. Did he write with such large letters because his eyesight had gone bad? That could very well be. Regardless, it was love that drove him to pick up the pen and get these last words out. He wanted them to see the letters. 
It was personal. It was emphatic. So don't miss this. Really what he's saying in these last verses is there's one thing. There's one thing that matters. One thing that counts. And it is this mindset that will, that's going to last and it's going to bear fruit for righteousness. And so to understand it, he does a second thing here, okay? Number two, he contrasts the marks of two very opposing mindsets. Okay, this is verses 12 to 15. We'll read it in a second, but I just want to ask you, so two opposing mindsets, which is right? Okay, the Galatians have heard one thing from Paul, which is faith alone and Christ alone, and now they've heard another thing from these Jewish Christians that we call the Judaizers, which is, well, yeah, faith in Jesus is good, but you need to get circumcised too. You need to get under the law of Moses. So have faith, but then add to it. So which is it? Well, when you get down to it, okay, there are marks that prove a genuine Christian mindset. And the marks are unmistakable. You can't miss it. Okay, notice verse 12. Paul says, listen to me. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. We can look at the marks of our mindset in two perspectives, okay? There is the inner mark of motivation and the outward mark of likeness to Jesus. I'll put it that way. Okay? Or if I can say that again, what marks you inwardly will always be proved by what marks you outwardly. Okay? So of this first kind of mindset, verses 12 to 13, Paul says this. Number one, did you see this? That it is inwardly it is marked by pride. What these guys, these false teachers are after, Paul says, is this. This is what they want. They want a good showing in the flesh. They want a pleasant front to the world. And again in verse 13, the reasons, so that they may boast in your flesh. They were not concerned about the Galatians. They were not concerned about their soul. They were not concerned about even whether or not they followed the law. Because you know what? They didn't, themselves didn't even keep it. What they gloried in was the praise of men. That's what they wanted. You can almost imagine that you know, these were almost comparable to our missionaries that we send out today, right? And you get missionary letters sometimes. We get updates from them. Well, imagine these guys sending a missionary letter back to the people of Jerusalem. The headline would have read this. A hundred converts in Galatia. Look at our converts, right? Look what we got. That's what they're after. The praise of men. Look what we've done. We say, well, how can that be known that that's really where their hearts were at? Well, like I said, what marks you inwardly will always mark, prove what is marked on the outside. So number two, outwardly, 
this kind of mindset, it's not marked at all. Let me get to what tell you what I mean. When you live in a man-centered existence, okay, it's all about the others around you. You live by them. You're driven by them. It's either for the praise of men or in the fear of man. That's it. And these teachers were coercing the Galatians to be circumcised. Why? What does it say? Only for one reason. That they themselves would not be what? Persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, they didn't want the outward marks. Theirs was a popular religion because it avoided the shame of the cross. Remember this, the cross was to the Jew a stumbling block and to the Greek foolishness. And really, think about that. The founder of your faith was executed like a criminal. And by the way, the manner of his execution was the worst kind. The founder of your faith. For the Jew, that meant to be hung on a tree. It meant you were accursed of God. So they stumbled over it. How could this be our Messiah? So it shouldn't surprise us that the first wave of persecution actually didn't come from the Romans. That came later. It came first from the Jews. Remember the Sanhedrin were the ones who stoned Stephen. And the guy who wrote this letter was busy dragging others off to prison before Jesus finally appeared to him. The Jews stumbled over the fact that, wait a minute, Gentiles could now be accepted apart from the law. No, that can't be. Because you know why? They were so consumed with a self-righteousness in their own adherence to the law. The gospel of the cross proclaimed was this, that Jews were just as condemned in their sin as everyone else. So persecution followed wherever the gospel went. Wherever Paul went, it wasn't far behind him. And if you haven't figured this out yet, mention of the cross of Christ wherever you go and whenever you go invites, okay? You are inviting persecution of all kinds. People don't want to hear that in actuality they are destitute sinners before God. Okay? The horror of the cross is the horror of our sin. But their reaction doesn't mean that you should just fly under the radar and hush up about it. The reason the cross means something to you and you will not hush up about it is because Christ means something to you. People avoid the cross when they don't really know the person who hung on it. They didn't know Jesus like Paul did. That's why he wouldn't be quiet about it. So you could say this. You could put it this way, I think. That real freedom, real freedom, gospel freedom, is proven in the marks. Think about it. The Judaizers were still slaves. They were slaves to the world. They operated on the basis of either the praise of men or the fear of men. But the mindset of Paul and of the true Christians is marked very differently. We're not slaves to the world. Right, but verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in what? In the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says his boast is one thing. The word for boast is wider than our English usage allows. So let me give you a little... Background, okay, but what Paul's really saying here. To boast in it means means to glory in, it means to trust in, it means to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. Okay, one writer puts it this way. Our boast is what fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. You see, Paul had a case of uh, G-O-D. You ever heard of G-O-D? Okay. My wife used to get poked with this expression, okay? Esther is so G-O-D. <laughs> what they meant was G-O-D was gospel overdose. That's what they used to say. Oh, you're just gospel overdose. You're too much on the gospel. What they meant as a jeer was, was really a compliment. Get overdosed on the gospel. Paul boasted of nothing else apart from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because it meant the world to him. He, Jesus, should mean the world to everyone. Right? Hey, why doesn't he mean the world to you? It's because some personal merit has taken his place. Okay? Some lesser boast in self. It's, well, my accomplishments, right? What I did. Or my converts. Or my theological rightness. Hey, come on. I'll tell you something. You need to choose your boast because you can't have both. You can't boast in Jesus Christ and boast in yourself at the same time. It's one or the other. So this kind of mindset, we note this, okay? A true Christian mindset, number one, inwardly it is marked by a Christ-centeredness. He has become our boast, our glory, our trust, our cherishing, right? This inward motivation is what Paul calls also, remember, a new creation in the next verse. Now, let's just, let's just take Paul for an example, okay? Turn in your Bibles a few pages over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, you know, to this church, you know, I know there's some who are boasting of great things. Let me tell you what I could have boasted about, Okay? And in Philippians 3, verse 4, he said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, he could trace his lineage. Not many Jews could do that even in that day. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Top notch. Got it? Okay. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's how far I was. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here's Paul's pedigree, okay? Here's what he had. He had a lot more going for him than the others of his day. But it was all self-glory, right? It was all for the praise of men. Now verse 7, look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, he's talking about all that, all that stuff. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Before Paul knew Christ, his boast was in every kind of outward accomplishment 
he could think of. He had it all going for him. But compared to Christ, everything he now had looked like a heaping pile of trash. Rubbish, he goes on to say. So Christ was everything. That's why he says in Galatians that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Put another way, the world now looks like trash to me. And I look like trash to the world. Say, what happened? What happened in this change? Well, the Spirit of God did the work of regeneration on His heart. The old boastful of self, Paul, was dead. What now existed was something entirely new. Remember what he said? The life I now live. I have been crucified with Christ. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what counts. Have you been marked with the renewing work of God in your heart? Are you a new creation? Then it will be the boast of your life. You see, because number two, outwardly, it is marked with Christ-likeness. See, the legalist claimed to be Christians. Oh yeah, yeah, we're Christians, we're just like Paul. But they lacked the defining outward marks. They were bound to the world of men, but Paul, on the other hand, was bound to Christ and free from the world. And guess what? He had the marks to show it. See verse 17? From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body, on my body, the marks of Jesus. The marks that Paul's talking about on his body were literal scars, deformities, caused by persecutions and sufferings. By this time, he had already been given the 39 lashes, lashes, okay, probably several times, and he's already been stoned and presumed dead. The Galatians would have seen such marks. The word for mark is the word stigma. You heard that word before? That's the Greek word. It was used of slaves, okay, referring to the scars that showed who their owner was. So Paul's essentially saying, you can tell who I belong to. Do you have the marks of the Savior? Well, you may not have been whipped or beaten or pushed around, but not all scars are visible, right? Because in this country, you will be labeled, you will be hated, you will be maligned, you will be ostracized. You will face scorn, you will face ridicule and insults. But I'll tell you something, remember this, that Jesus endured all those too. Not just the physical beating. So I'm thinking about these two mindsets. They're opposed, completely different. And I'm asking, as so should you, what are my marks? How am I marked inwardly? And is that shown, is it proved by how I'm marked outwardly? Am I putting on a good show? Is Is that what I'm doing? Getting more likes or more handshakes, et cetera, et cetera. Is that what I'm most concerned about? And then to take that further and say, well, what are we then as a church most concerned about? You know, a church may all too easily try to make a good show of the flesh. You know, 
And we've seen it all before, right? To make a good show of the flesh. Flesh being an out an outward sign, right? That's what circumcision was. It was nothing more than an outward sign, right? And he, what he's talking about is being driven by external things. Is that us? Are we driven by how we look or how good our numbers are or how many ministries we have or how entertaining our services are? That's making a good show in the flesh. Or is Christ and his cross our everything? Well, having laid out the two mindsets okay, that the Galatians must choose between, Paul does one final thing in his last remarks, okay, which was sure to leave a lasting impression. Okay. Number three, he affirms that the blessing of God will be upon the true people of God. Verses 16 and 18. Notice this then. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Right, and as for all who walk by this rule, okay, the rule, the measuring standard, it's where we get the word canon from, right? The canon of scripture means measuring rod. And what's it refer back to? It refers back to the new creation of verse 15. So if we walk by the newness of life, okay, which is faith that is energized into loving, then Paul's affirmation is that God's mercy and peace and grace would be with them. Right? And those, think about those three words. They are the words that signify the benefits of our salvation. Okay? He's holding those out. If you want his mercy, you want his peace and his grace, then you'll walk by this rule. And he says that this blessing will be upon those who walk by this rule and upon the Israel of God. Now, that's interesting. Paul never uses this expression anywhere else, the Israel of God. Now, some people in studying this see two different groups, okay? Which would have to mean that Paul is blessing a group of Gentile believers on the one hand and the Israel of God which could only mean then Jewish believers on the other. Okay? And the reasoning is the word and, right? Right? Because it makes it sound like there's two groups, this group and this group. Okay? But here's the problem. What you run into with Galatians is this. Why would Paul distinguish Gentile from Jewish believers when he has already shown throughout the whole purpose of the letter that they are one in Jesus Christ? Okay? They're one in Christ. His argument all along has been salvation has nothing to do with your ethnicity. So why would he make a distinguishing mark, remark here? Gentiles are not second-class citizens. In view of that, it would be far better to understand the context of the letter and to understand the word and to be what we would say in an explicative way. Okay, So it would read something like this. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. What we mean to say is, there would not be two groups in view, but one. So by Israel of God, Paul is actually referring to the church. And it shouldn't surprise us. 
I'll tell you why. Because Paul and the other apostles used phrases that once described Israel to now describing the church. Okay, We are the true circumcision, Paul writes. We are the holy temple. We're the dwelling of God. And earlier in the book of Galatians, he said that the church, people of the church, are the sons, the true sons of Abraham. That doesn't sound all that different for me from the Israel of God. The mistake that we would to make would be this, to conclude that by interpreting it this way, we're affirming that God has no future plan for ethnic Israel. No, we're not saying that. God has plans for Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. But in this text, okay, based on this message of this book and the letter, it's best understood as Paul's pronouncing a blessing upon one group. True believers, okay, the church. And the point is this, okay, the point is that Gentiles and Jews who have believed in Jesus Christ are actually the true people of God. Now, this would have inflamed the legalists, but it would have affirmed the shaken Gentile believers that they are indeed legitimate sons of God, even without circumcision. So I ask, do you realize, do you realize that in Christ you are not deficient in any way. You're not lacking anything. That's what Paul's saying. You are fully and wonderfully his child. You are heirs according to promise. You have his mercy, his peace, and his grace. Now, walk by the newness that you've been given. Okay, Live life with the only obsession that anyone ought to have, which is this, the magnificent obsession of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so with the words of Paul, okay, with a word that is intended to add weight okay, and confirmation to what he said, okay, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're led... We're led to think about what our mind is in looking at this passage and how we are marked. Lord, we don't want to be dry. I just, I'm thinking about Paul and his passion for the crucified Christ, for the salvation that Jesus alone can offer. And I don't want my boast to be in anything else. I don't want our church to boast in anything else. So may this make a lasting impression upon us. May we have the marks that last. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.